a plow or some other farm implement. And if you had one little donkey and one big ox, the yoke was not equal. The, the ox would uphold the donkey and it didn't work well. There's a problem if you yoked unequally. We didn't have animals when I was growing up, but my dad did help my mom make a great big garden and he pulled a cultivating tool that we had to break up the dirt with a Jeep. And my dad had been in the Navy in World War II, and I, I remember as a young boy hearing really interesting language as they discussed with each other the best way to do the, what was going on right there as the, the Jeep pulled and the tool dug in too deep or popped out, or, and um, that dad would occasionally let fly with language that I will not repeat, and I didn't really want to learn, but I did serve in the Marine Corps as well, so I did hear some of that language. But, you want an equal pull, you want an even pull to pull a yoke, and believers are being addressed, obviously. He says you, and then in contrast to you, the unbelievers, don't get in the yoke with them. What are you talking about? Well, the most obvious is marriage. The other things that are also true, and the same principle is business partners, uh, any kind of partnership where two people are supposed to be of the same mind, he says don't do that with unbelievers. Fellow, what fellowship? What do you have in common? The word fellowship means having things in common. What fellowship? What things in common does a person with righteousness, that is not saying you're a good guy and the other guy's bad, but God's own righteousness put to your account with somebody that's just unrighteous. I want to show you something. I do this at the beginning so that you can remember it and see it, and we won't have to go, we'll probably go back to it again. But if I let this hand represent you and me, and this little piece of wood says sin on it. I always put this on me because that was our historical problem. We all had sin on us. But God solved our problem. God the Father sent his son Jesus, who had no sin. Though he was a man, he had no sin. Born of the Virgin Mary, so that he did not inherit Adam's sin nature. And 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. What Jesus finished when he died on the cross. He said, it is finished. It was the payment for sin. He died, he was buried, he rose again. And John 3:16 says, Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 at the end that we might be made, we might be made the very righteousness of God in him. He's covered us up with his righteousness. So we're not saying when we refer to the righteousness of believers that we're good guys. We're saying we have the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ put to our account and there's nothing in common between that and the unrighteousness of a lost person who has nothing but his own works to recommend him, and that doesn't recommend him well to God at all. What communion, the things we have in common again, has light with darkness. You ever think about a candle trying to share something in common with a darkness? When you bring a candle into darkness, the darkness goes away. They don't share anything in common. Light chases out darkness. Darkness doesn't allow light. What concord hath Christ with Belial? Now, I didn't look up this particular false god or demon god, Belial, but they don't have anything together. They just don't. 
What part hath he that believeth with an infidel? That just means somebody that doesn't believe, somebody without faith. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Now the Corinthians, like the Athenians and all the others of the Greek world, knew lots of things about gods and idols and temples because they had lots of them in every city. They had a, a main god or goddess, Athens had, What's Athens sound like? It sounds a little like Athena. There was a temple to the Greek goddess Athena up on the Acropolis in Athens. And the Parthenon is the name of that temple. It's one of the most beautiful buildings in the world, but it was ugly full of demon worship in the days that they worshiped there. And then John, Paul has already taught back in 1 Corinthians that the believers are the temple, we ourselves, the bodies of the believers are where God the Holy Spirit lives. Where God lives is a temple. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so he says in verse 16, what agreement has the temple of God, that's you, with idols? And then he says it, you are the temple of the living God. That's the difference between the idols and God, the creator of the universe. The idols are just made up. Now, sometimes they do things. How do they do that? There are spiritual powers, we call them demons, that actually made people fear idols. They were not the living God, they were bad spirits. And he says, you're the temple, and there's no agreement between you and demon worship, idol worship. And then he goes to quoting the Old Testament. God has said, I'll dwell in them and walk in them. I'll be their God, they'll be my people. Wherefore, because of everything we just said, he says, come out from among them. From among whom? From, just, just don't be part of the society, the corporation of lost people. Be you separate, saith the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing. I'll receive you and be a father unto you. You'll be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Now that is a quotation from the Old Testament, but it sets the stage <clears throat> for this lesson here in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, don't get unequally yoked together with unbelievers. I want to look back and see where this was taught much earlier. This is page 42 in a Schofield Bible, Genesis chapter 28, verse 1. God had made an, a covenant, a promise to Abraham and then he had a son named Isaac, and Isaac had a son named Jacob. And the promise passed on from Abraham to Isaac and from Isaac to Jacob. God promised the same promise to all of them. It was multiple multitudes of children and a nation. And Isaac called his son Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said unto him, Thou shalt not take a wife of the daughter's of Canaan. And you say, why did he tell him that? Well, Jacob had a, a brother, Esau. And Esau had already taken two wives, and they were Canaanites. And Isaac looked askance at that. He didn't want his other son, Jacob, whose name was changed by God to Israel. He didn't want Jacob to take wives of Canaan. So he gives him further instructions. He says, go to Padan Aram to the house of Bethuel, thy mother's father, and take thee a wife from thence of the daughters of Laban, thy mother's brother. 
And God Almighty bless thee and make thee fruitful and multiply thee that thou mayest be a multitude of people and give thee the blessing of Abraham to thee and to thy seed with thee that thou mayest inherit the land wherein thou art a stranger which God gave unto Abraham. You may have noticed in the news lately that some people are arguing about whether this actually was done by God to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Israel the land, but he did, and you read it right there, and it, nobody ever took it away. God threw them out on their ear for a while, but he gave the land to Abraham and to Isaac and to Israel and Israel's 12 sons. Now we go on from that verse, which is pretty plain, don't take a wife, don't take a wife from these people here in the land. He had to reemphasize it. In the book of Exodus, Moses comes along to communicate to God's people Israel a little bit more. And in chapter 34, verse 11, page 116, if you need the page number in the Schofield Bible, Exodus 34, 11, God speaking to Moses and says, Observe thou that which I command thee this day. Behold, I drive out before thee the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. All those Zites, brothers. The nations of the land, I'm driving them out. Take heed to thyself. What? What? Lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land whither thou goest, you make an arrangement, a promise with them, and it'll be a lest it be for a snare in the midst of thee. What is he concerned about? But you shall destroy their altars, the place where they worship their false god, their demon gods. Break their images. Cut down their groves. He didn't say grab them and, and enjoy them. He said break them and cut them down. Thou shalt worship no other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Verse 15, he says, Lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they go whoring after their gods, and do sacrifice unto their gods, and one call thee, and thou eat of his sacrifice, and thou take of their daughters unto thy sons, and their daughters go after their gods, and make thy sons go after their gods. Don't make molten gods. Don't do it. Don't be like them. You're different. Don't do it. When you go into the land, I'm giving you the land. Get rid of that stuff. He had to repeat it. Everything he gave him in Exodus, he repeated in Deuteronomy. This is page 224, Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 through 6. When the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land whither thou goest to possess it, and cast out many nations before thee, and there they are again, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than thou. He's going to cast those nations out before Israel. And when the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee, thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. Thou shalt make no ceasefire, pause in the attack, oh, no covenant with them, no short, nor show mercy unto them. Neither shalt thou make marriages with them, thy daughter thou shalt not give to his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. Don't do it. They will turn away thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly. 
We're going to read the next two verses, but I want to pause here for a second. There's the reason these false gods, these demon gods, I call them, these idols of the land were represented by images that they'd carved or carved out of a tree or metal or whatever. They were filthy. Sexually, you wouldn't want a description in the public place. They were gross. They were vile. And think of the worst pornography that you can think of today. They were that and more. They were that and more, and they didn't get better. And there is, for young people and old people, attraction in those things. And God says, I don't want you involved with them. I don't want you going with them. Don't let the, you don't serve them. The anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he destroy you suddenly. Thus shall you deal with them. You shall destroy their altars and break down their images and cut down their groves and burn the graven images with fire. I, I hesitate to get specific, but if you have a pornography collection and then you get saved, don't go to the garage sale and sell it. That's not the thing. I don't, but I don't care how much you have invested in it or you somebody else. It's to be burned. In the book of Acts, it's recorded that in the city of Ephesus, some three years after they'd been saved, Paul got preaching and the people got under conviction and they brought all of their sorcery books, their witchcraft books, their demon books, and they didn't have a big garage sale. They burned them. And it says the value of what was burned was 50,000. And you can just think of it as 50,000 days wages if you want to. Can you imagine? Today, I think a wage is in this country in the neighborhood of $100 or thereabouts. 50,000 days wages worth of books not sold to get the money out of it so you could help the poor people. Destroyed, because that's what was the right thing to do. In verse 6, he says, Thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. Moses reiterating the special place that the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Israel had as they went into the promised land. Now, we're going to look at a couple other places. They had failed to keep these instructions. When they went into the land, they conquered the land, but they did all the things that God told them not to do, all the things that God told them not to do, and he sent them away into captivity for 70 years. And after the 70 years of captivity, he allowed them to come back into the land under the leadership of a priest named Ezra and a leader, a governor, if you will, named Nehemiah. And in Ezra chapter 9, after they've already suffered the consequences of God's disfavor for years in captivity in Babylon, in Ezra chapter 9, this is recorded. When these things were done, the princes came to me saying, uh, I hate to tell you this, <laughs> kind of hang their head, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands, doing according to their abominations. I did tell you it was bad, didn't I? Their abominations even the abominations of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites and the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Egyptians and the Amorites. 
they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed, God's children, have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yea, the hand of the princes and rulers have been chief in this trespass. And Ezra the good priest said, When I heard this, I rent my garment and my mantle, and I plucked the hair off my head and of my beard, and I sat down astonished. I didn't know what to do. Now, he, what he did do was get them free of those associations as best he could. Scary. Before, long before Ezra, before they were sent off into captivity, one of the great kings, David, had a great son, Solomon. And you've heard of the wisdom of Solomon, but when you get to chapter 11 in 1 Kings, page 402, we get past the, the good things Solomon did. Verse, chapter 10 is all about the queen of Sheba hearing the wisdom of Solomon and testing him with questions, all the good stuff. But chapter 11 starts out with that horrible word, but King Solomon loved many strange women. Now, when you first see that phrase, strange women, you might come call to mind the bar scene in the Star Wars movies where there's some strange-looking partners in there. That's not what it means. It just means they don't belong to you. They don't belong. The idea of alien, not space aliens, but people not citizens of this country. Aliens coming in. Solomon loved many strange women. Name some of them. The daughter of Pharaoh. That's an Egyptian. He's not Israel. She's not an Israelite. Women of the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Edenites and the Zidonians and the, the Hittites even. <clears throat> These are the people of the nations concerning which the Lord said to the children of Israel, you shall not go into them. Neither shall they come unto you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon, wise he was called, Solomon clave unto these in love. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. Now we get to that verse and usually we just make a joke and go on. But it's not funny. 700 wives, and the thing setting that verse up is they were strange women, alien women, the ones that turn away their heart after other gods. And the end of verse 3 says, his wives turned away his heart. Verse 4, it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God as was the heart of of David his father. David his father did bad things, but he didn't do these things. Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. I'm not going to tell you what I found when I did research into these particular false gods, because we have young ears in the auditorium with us this morning but they are as filthy and vile. Abomination is too good of a word. It's too soft of a word to describe how bad these false gods and the worship of them was. It's just, it can't be spoken of in public, I'm sorry. 
Verse 6 says, Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and went not fully after the Lord, as did David his father. And did Solomon build a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, in a hill that is before Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the children of Ammon. The only one I'll mention in more detail is Molech. The other ones are worse. Molech was a great bronze furnace image with a gaping open jaw mouth that led down into the oven of the belly. And they built a big fire in the bottom of it and made it very hot. And then they did sexual abominations in front of the idol and the ones that had children as a result of that brought them and threw them in the mouth of the idol and went on with that kind of worship. That's the abomination of the children of Ammon, Molech. Kind of reminds me of the abortion situation in our country today. Children are a blessing from the Lord, not a hardship. Likewise did he for all his strange wives, which burnt incense and sacrificed unto their gods. The missing information is what it was that they sacrificed unto their gods, but it was vile. It was awful. Well, we're going to leave the Old Testament, and you're probably glad. <laughs> Go to 1 Corinthians. We're, 2 Corinthians is what we're studying. In 1 Corinthians, Paul has already delivered this letter to the people he's writing to in Corinth, and he gave them some specific instructions about whether or not to get married. And he says in verse 27 of chapter 7, it's page 1218 of 1 Corinthians, he says, Are you bound unto a wife? Keep it. Don't, seek not to be loosed. He says, if you're married, you're married. Don't say, but if I didn't have a wife, I could serve the Lord better, so it's God's will that I get rid of my wife. No, don't say that. If you're bound to a wife, you're bound to a wife. Don't seek to be loosed. Then he says, are you loosed from a wife? Are you free of being married? Paul, I think, was loosed from a wife, not by divorce, but, but it does indicate in the Bible, in the book of Acts, that he voted along with the Sanhedrin when they were condemning the Christians. To be a Sanhedrin member, I believe he had to be married. But later on, as he writes this in 1 Corinthians, he's obviously single. He says, I want you to be like I am. So I believe his wife had died. Paul was a widower. Are you loosed from a wife like me? Well, then stick with it. Don't seek a wife. And then he eases back and he says, but if you marry, you haven't sinned. If a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such shall have trouble in the flesh, but I spare you. He was familiar with marriage. <laughs> not making a joke, but he said there's trouble involved there. No, there's no marriage that is the same as heaven. Have you noticed that? If you're married, you probably have. If you haven't noticed that, ask your wife. She'll tell you. Verse 29, he explains himself. This I say, brethren, the time is short. He expected the Lord to return. The time is short. Life is short. It remaineth that both they had wives as though that they had none, and they that weep as though they wept not, and they that rejoice as though they rejoice not, they that buy as though they possess not, they that use the world not abusing it. The fashion of the world passes away. But I want to have you without carefulness. He that is unmarried cares for the things that belong to the Lord, how he can please the Lord. He that is married cares for the things that are of the world, how he may please his wife. And that's the whole of Paul's advice about marriage. You can do more for the Lord if you don't have to take the time aside to please your wife. Let's skip down here to verse 39. The wife is bound by the law 
as long as her husband liveth. That's the law. You're married, you're married. If her husband be dead, she's at liberty to be married to whom she will, only in the Lord. If you find that you are free and able to be married and you want to be married and you find a lost person that you think you should marry, you're doing something contrary to the Bible. Say it plainly. If you find somebody that's not saved, you don't marry them. It's not according to the Bible. He says only in the Lord. But she, this, this widow lady, is happier if she just stays single, according to Paul's judgment. And he says, by the way, I do have the Spirit of God. This is uh, God's word here that we're writing. He knew that. We'll go back to two chapters, a little ter- two chapters earlier, chapter 5, page 1216. And he gets real specific about sexual sins in chapter 5. He says, I wrote unto you an epistle, and that's obviously an earlier letter that we don't have in the Bible, not to company with fornicators, with people that are involved in sexual activity outside of marriage. Just don't hang with those people. And then he says, some of you have misunderstood what I'm saying here. I'm not saying altogether, don't be around the fornicators of this world or covetous or extortioners or idolaters. If you can't be around bad people, you might as well come to heaven. You must needs go out of the world. But he says, what I was talking about when I wrote that to you, I've written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be involved in sexual sins or greed or idol worship or he's a a big arguer or he's a drunk or he's an extortioner with such a one not to eat. You mean believers can do that stuff? Yeah, they shouldn't, but they could. And he says, when you got somebody in your church that's in all those, one of those categories, don't sit down to Sunday dinner with them. Don't do it. Those people you're supposed to stay away from. Shame them. He says, I'm not telling you to stay away from lost people like that because you'd have to go, what good are you if you don't talk to lost people? He says, what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do you not judge them that are within? You know, in the parking lot this morning out by the gym, I found a cigarette butt. Now, I'm not going to say that's the worst sin, but I found it, and I said, Ugh. and I picked it up, and I went and put it in the dumpster. And I'm thinking, wouldn't it be better if we put big signs up by the road that says no smoking on the property? And then I thought about that and said, no, we don't want to do that. We want lost people to come in here. We don't necessarily want them smoking, but we'd want them to feel welcome in whatever situation they are. I'd rather they didn't crack a beer open in the church service, but we want lost people in here to hear the gospel and to be saved. We don't want to put up signs that saying, we're better than you are, stay away. We want to put up signs that say, man, we're as sick as you are. Come on in. This is a hospital. This is not a shiny palace. This is a hospital where sick people come and they get better. Paul says, what do I have to do to judge them that are outside? Don't you judge them that are inside? Why don't you judge the ones that are inside? Them that are outside, God will judge. So among the ones that are among you, that wicked person that's among you, you church people, put them away from among yourselves. Don't allow somebody that's a believer that's obviously in sin to enjoy the fellowship of the church. Put them away. That's ugly. Well, it's what it says. I didn't write it. (laughs) He says, but I'm not talking about staying away from lost people that are like that. You got to go find the lost people and, and share the gospel with them. 
We've got a little more time here. We're going to go over to John chapter 17. This is page 1139. John chapter 17. Jesus prays the entire chapter. Chapter 17 is how what we call it, but the whole thing is the Lord Jesus' prayer just before he went to the Garden of Gethsemane through the illegal trials of the night and on to the cross to die for us. This is his closing prayer. And you know, when you're in a church service and you come to the closing prayer, you hope it's fairly brief. But he had a long closing prayer and it was all good. But he's praying especially for his disciples. He says, I pray not, in verse 15, I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world. I don't want you to rip them out of the world. Don't, don't keep them hidden in a corner. He was not in favor of the monastery idea of Christianity where the believers get together and put a wall around themselves and don't ever, don't ever go out of it. He says, I want you to keep them, protect them, guard them from the evil one. They're not of the world. I'm not of the world. Sanctify them. Set them apart. But how? Not with a wall. Set them apart through thy truth. Thy word is truth. What should make you appear different than the world? Your knowledge of and use of and the way that you let the word of God change your life. I often pray when we start a message that we'll hear and understand and remember and let change us the word of God that we're studying. In verse 18, he says, the same way as thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. Jesus, when he was ministering, the Pharisees, those are really good people, they really are really good people, Jesus used them as an example of righteousness. He said, except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. He said, they're very righteous. But they condemned him. They criticized him because he hung out with people who were not righteous. They don't, doesn't he know that woman is a, <gasps> that man, he's a filthy tax collector. What's, what's wrong with being a tax collector? In those days, the tax collector had the Roman army power to take the taxes that the government demanded, and they often took a bit more for themselves without any constraint. That's what was wrong with being a publican or a tax collector. I do know that in England they call the ones that keep the pubs publicans, but I think it means tax collector in our New Testament. I'm not sure. Jesus got around bad people, and he says, As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. Get into the world and share the message of Jesus. He says in the next verse in chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians, you are the temple of the living God. I reminded it, he said this earlier in 1 Corinthians. He wrote it in the first letter too. He says in verse 16, this is, this is page 1214, Know you not that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? No, he didn't. He said, don't you know that you're the temple of God? And the Spirit of God dwells in you. Hey, if any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. The temple of God is holy, and that's you, which temple you are. He's threatening them. And he does it again in chapter 
6, at the end of chapter 6, page 1217, the same letter, he says, I had to say this again. Don't you know, verse 19, know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy God, Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own. You are bought with a price. Do you remember how we looked at this block of sin and it was on us and Jesus came to earth and he took it onto himself? That's the price. It didn't cost us anything, but we were bought by God sending his son to pay this horrible death price for sin. We're purchased so that God can possess us. He says, on the grounds of that great price, as Peter says in his first letter, the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish and without spot, not corruptible things as silver and gold, you're bought with a price, so glorify God in your body and in your spirit. The whole thing, all of you, glorify God in them. Those things belong to God. Your body and your spirit belongs to God. Which part of you is left out there? Does he let you keep a little bit over in the corner for yourself? Is there a hiding place from God in your life? It doesn't work. You know, it, there's a verse in the Old Testament that says somebody intending to do something illicit. He says he looked this way and he looked that way and then he didn't see anybody. So he went ahead and did what he was doing. He forgot to look that way. There is no hiding place from God. Well, I'm going to go back to the, the easiest explanation I think that there is of this thing that, that Paul wants us to be involved with in the sharing with the world. Why are we in the world? Second Corinthians chapter 5, in the verse 18, he says he's given to us the ministry of reconciliation. God has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. There's this sin blocking our way to God. He's taken the sin out of the way, reconciling us to God. And then he says, let me explain that to you in verse 19, to wit, I'm going to explain it now, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, no, not imputing, not charging their trespasses unto them. The sin doesn't come back. I still sin. It's 2,000 years since Jesus died, but he already took my trespasses. He took out of the way what stood between me and God and has committed, Paul says, to us the word of reconciliation, the work of reconciliation Jesus did. But telling lost people is our job who have believed in Jesus. He's committed unto us the word of reconciliation. We are ambassadors for Christ, verse 20 says, as go, God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. Think about it. The work of reconciliation, taking the sin away, taking it out of the way so we can come to God is all done. But the word of reconciliation has to be in the mouth of somebody that knows it talking to somebody that doesn't. And he says, it's just like God was by us, by me, begging you in the stead of Jesus Christ, take the reconciliation, believe in Jesus. And then verse 21 just sums it all up. 
he, God the Father, made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the very righteousness of God in him. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, John 3.16 says. That's what Paul wants the Corinthians to get involved with in chapter 6. The day you got saved is the right day to get started in this ministry thing, the ministry of reconciliation. He says, let's not give any offense to lost people. It'll mess up the ministry. And he goes through all the things that were involved in his ministry. At the end of chapter 6, verse 11, 12, and 13, he says, we're not narrowed. Our heart is enlarged. We're wide open to this idea of ministry. And he says in verse 13, my children, you also be enlarged. Get a wide open heart. And then he gives this long message that we just went through about don't tangle yourself up with unbelievers. It's not a good way to plow a field, and there's nothing in its favor. It's not good. God says, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. I'll be a father unto you, and you'll be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. You don't get into the family of God by separating. You get into the family of God by believing in Jesus. But if you have neighbors, anybody doesn't have any neighbors? If you have family, it's possible you wouldn't have any family, but I think most of us have family. If you have people you work with, and unless you're in my position where the people you work with are in this building, if you have people you work with and some among all of those people are lost, you've got a job to do. We are, it is committed to unto us, the ministry of reconciliation. Tell the world. Jesus said in his prayer to the Father, As thou hast sent me into this world, even so send I them. To seek and to save that which was lost. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He did the work. We've got the word. Somebody says, I'm going to let my light so shine among men and people will see my good works. If you keep your mouth shut while you're doing that, who do they glorify? I do good works. Well, praise you. <laughs> but if you do good works, if you're kind and right and good to people, and you open your mouth with the ministry of reconciliation and invite them, beg them in Christ's stead to be reconciled to God. When they see your good works, they glorify your Father which is in heaven. Isn't that about it? So beware of unequal yokes. And if you are not, we beg you in Christ's stead, be you reconciled to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we have opened your word this morning. We do ask you that no one would be overwhelmed by the offensiveness of the words that describe the idolatry. But we pray, Father, you'll teach us how truly awful it is to be involved in an unequal yoke, as Solomon was, as Ezra's people were, as God warned
as through, uh, through Isaac to his son Jacob, as God warned through Moses to his people both before and after they went into the land. Help us to give no offense in anything, that the ministry be not blamed. And let us fulfill the responsibility of this ministry of reconciliation and beg people in Christ's stead, believe in Jesus, be reconciled to God, in whose name we pray.